winter retreat. Students will be gathering and leaving Friday afternoon, going to Franklin, PA, to the castle. Over 60 high school students will be participating. It's the most in the last three years, so that's great news. 25 adult uh, uh, small group leaders, eight cooks, pushing 100 folks are going to be away next weekend. You take my age and divide it by two. I was a youth pastor at that point in my life. And I remember winter retreat as a highlight, as one of the most fertile opportunities for God to work in the lives of students. We spent an enormous amount of energy, effort, money. By the way, your faithful generosity makes these kind of things happen. I remember early on in my time as a youth pastor, getting sick every, every year. I just planned on it. I got a little wiser with time and paced myself and didn't exhaust myself. But lots of effort goes into this. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So all the creativity, all the wonderful opportunities, all the programming, great food, wonderful influence of adults, all of that will really accomplish little, if anything, for eternity if God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't show up. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel is telling Saul that it would be sin for Samuel not to pray for Saul. I think sometimes we sin as Christ followers in failing to pray for other people. Let's not fail to pray for our students and the adults that are going to be participating this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and winter retreat. Great opportunity. Look forward to hearing the, the reports and just see what God's going to do. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We have reminded ourselves of who you are. In the name above all names, we want to build our lives on the rock, Jesus, the foundation. We want, Father, you to be glorified. We, we want our lives to make a difference. And so we pray, Lord, for these students and the adults and, and all that's been invested in them and coming to this particular event. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would use the word of God would use the, the collective love and expression of sacrifice of so many, the Lord, you would break down barriers, open hearts. Lord, accomplish whatever you want to accomplish in those students and in those adults. 
And we look forward, Father, to giving you praise for all that you are going to do. Protect them, make their bus ride over there safe. And just, just Lord, we, there's so many pieces, so many moving parts, but Lord, ultimately we want your spirit to move. And we ask the same thing, Father, as we study your word in these moments to follow. Father, thank you for the willingness of of these people. The hunger that they have to, to know you with greater depth and clarity. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher, protect them from any misunderstanding I may have, a misinterpretation or a misapplication. But Lord, accomplish what you want to accomplish in our lives. Please, Father, for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago, before I was a teenager, I accepted Christ as my Savior. To my recollection, I never heard the gospel clearly presented prior to that. I had no doubt of my sinfulness as a preteen. I had done some things that I wasn't very proud of. It was clear. I, I was a sinner. The idea that Jesus Christ would die in my place just blew me away. It was an incredible truth of which I am still grateful. As I moved through that time of adolescence and beyond until I'm here now, I realize I'm on this journey like everybody is. It's possible that you were here this morning and you're on a spiritual journey whether you know it or not and maybe you haven't even come to the point where you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Our prayer is that you would do that. And when you do, your journey's not over. That's not, the, that's not the destination. That's just the beginning. So on this journey, I, I have had many times of great frustration, of just utter defeat. I just... Seeing again and again sin just flow out of me. Hurting the people around me, hurting myself. Certainly not pleasing God. And there have been times where I've just thought, what's the deal? What's wrong with me? Why is it that I don't seem to be able to, everybody else seems doing okay. What's wrong with me? A little secret I've discovered over the years that we're all having some problems. But nevertheless, I felt defeated. <laughs> Excuse me. And 
It's taken me a while to, to grow mature enough. Please don't hear. I'm not saying I've got it all licked. I got all the answers. I don't. But God is blessed with some growth and maturity and some insight. So, so that I don't, I don't go to the depth of hopelessness and despair that I have done in the past. Because I want to know how to win. Well, the Apostle Paul, who is the chief person telling us about our spiritual warfare in the New Testament, revisits it in his second letter to the believers at Corinth. 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the believers at Corinth, it was basically um, a wake-up call. The church at Corinth was a, a messed-up church. Lots of problems. And he's pointing those out to them. And then after a period of time, they were actually starting to understand and become obedient and deal with some things. And so he writes 2 Corinthians, and he's trying to encourage them. Because everybody needs encouragement. Every single one of us need encouragement. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he starts off that chapter, and, and he didn't write it in chapters and verses. You understand that that's something that we've added to aid us in our reading and studying of the Word. He was just writing a letter. But he talks about the, the accusation that he exercised duplicity in his life, inconsistencies of his life. One of the greatest weapons of the enemy is to, is to point out that, that we're inconsistent. And we're all inconsistent. But the, the accusation of these believers, supposedly, was that the Apostle Paul was a, a meek, nice guy when he was in their presence. But when he was away and was writing to them, he was uh, aggressive, overbearing. And he starts to talk about that, but then he directs their thinking to something deeper, more profound, and more personal. And it's our individual spiritual warfare. He, he, in the midst of talking about this church-wide kind of hassle that was going on, he brings it down to the individual's. Let me read the verses for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your, excuse me, obedience is complete. We'll end up talking about that strange verse 6 as far as I'm concerned. It's a strange verse. <coughs> he starts out by telling them, now wait a minute, let's not just focus on the big church-wide hassle and the attack on me. Let's bring it down to you. And you live in the world. What does that mean? 
The word world is used in at least six different ways in the New Testament. And the context has to guide us in what it's about. The ESV, English Standard Version, says you live in the flesh. It's talking about the world of humans. You are a person. You live in a world of people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Jesus came and died for people. He didn't come and die for horses. He didn't die for angels. He died for people. Because God loves people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first letter that Paul wrote to these people, he's, he's telling them, I'm not telling you to stay away from people. You, you, can't, you can't do that. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. He says the only alternative biblically to not being around people is to be in heaven. And until you're in heaven, you're going to be around people. And people are people. They're sinful. They have all kinds of problems, challenges. And, and if we're going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be salt and light, if we're going to be, live in, in a fallen world and represent Jesus like the Apostle Paul calls us to do, we're going to be around people that aren't very nice. It's just the way it is. Don't worry about that, he says. In fact, John 17, Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world as he was sent into the world. It's people. But then in 1 John 2, 15, it says, do not love the world. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? See, same word, different context, different meaning. The world that Jesus died for, the world that we are sent into, the world the Apostle Paul says we can't avoid if we're going to be the kind of people we're supposed to be, that's a different use of the word world than in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, he's talking about, the Apostle John is talking about the world system. It's a hostile, philosophical, ideological environment. And you live in that environment. The Corinthians in first century Corinth lived in a hostile environment. You live in a hostile environment. Be aware of it. Do not be naive. Be intentional. Be intentional because you live in the world, the world of people. Don't be taken off guard. And at the same time, you're in a war. He continues. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. There is a conflict going on. Where is this conflict? It's not hand-to-hand. It's not, we're not using swords or shotguns or anything like that. Where is the war? This war. We've already read it. When he talks about it in verse 5, we demolish arguments, every pretense against the knowledge of God, take every thought captive. The battle that the Apostle Paul says that every Christ follower is in the midst of is in your mind. 
It's in our minds. We're fighting the battle in our minds. And what is happening is that we live in the world and the system, the people we love and the people we are sent to minister to, but we have this world system, this world's way of thinking that we are constantly combating. <coughs> Perhaps the easiest way to get that is to, is to go to a very benign kind of thing. There are lots of people who are very bright, very creative, very well-funded, who live their lives with one express purpose. It is to convince you that you have a problem and that they can solve your problem if you will buy what they're selling. We get that all the time. Television, radio, print media, it's everywhere. And they're, and they're doing their very best to convince you that you've got to spend money on what they have to offer. It's going to make your life happy, healthy, easier, better, more fun, more joy. Buy our car. You're going to have a better life. Okay? And buy our hamburgers because you deserve a break today. I mean, it's just, it's just one thing after another. That is a culture attacking your brain to get you to think a certain way. We live in a secular world, a fallen, sinful, secular world. And our world, our culture, is consistently trying to get us to think the way they want us to think. My parents, World War II, grew up with the idea that smoking was the thing to do. I mean, it was just a natural thing. Everybody smoked. Women went off to work while the guys went off to war. Everybody smoked. Well, our government, in its benevolence, decided that smoking wasn't supposed to be good for us, and so they convinced us to stop smoking. Oh, it's a good thing not to smoke. I'm not, I'm not saying you should go smoke. Don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but, but you understand, our culture, it taught us that we should smoke, then it told us we shouldn't smoke. In my lifetime, one of the things that, that I've, I've watched our culture do is, is when I was younger, we would drive down the road, and if we had a piece of garbage, what did we do with it? We threw it out the window. I mean, we just, it's just normal. Well, now, you don't throw anything out the window. You throw an apple car out, and you hope there, apple core out, and you hope there's no policeman around going to give you a ticket. Okay? Our culture has taught us that. Our culture is trying to teach us that there are certain lifestyle choices. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Just make sure you understand you're in a war. And it's a battle in your mind. Okay? So what you think, what you value. So don't be naive. Don't be gullible. Act like it. You are in a war. We fight differently, and we have different weapons. First of all, how do we fight differently? 
Take biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Baptist Christianity is always the same as biblical Christianity. Okay? We have some traditions and things, and I'm not saying they're good or bad. I'm just saying that we kind of think that our way of doing it is the right way, and so we equate that with Bible. And it's not necessarily true. But biblical Christianity tells us that the last shall be first. That God opposes the proud, gives strength to the humble. That we are to be servants. That we are to be ridiculously generous. That's different thinking. That's a different way to do life, to do battle than our culture. It's just an intriguing thing. In the American culture, and I'm grateful that God made it so I was born and raised in the United States. I, I, I find that to be an incredible privilege. Incredible privilege. But just because it's American doesn't mean it's automatically biblical. One of the greatest keystones, fundamental principles of the United States is, is the value of the individual. You realize, of course, that the re- most of the rest of the world doesn't think that way, and the Bible doesn't teach that. What's important is the family, the community, the group. So, be careful of just assuming because we do it in America, everything's good, okay? Or just because we do it in a Baptist church, everything is just exactly what God wants, okay? We fight differently, but our weapons are better. Look, it says, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. We need to use those weapons. What are those weapons? How does this work? Well, Let's ask the question before we answer that question of what are these strongholds he's talking about. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, these are ways of thinking. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, we have, as individual Christ followers, have ways of thinking that the Scripture calls strongholds. I never had the opportunity to go into combat, to, be, to do that at all. But I've watched enough movies and read enough books and talked to enough people that have to know that basically what happens is that you show up and you find out where the enemy is and you go find them and kill them. And then you disperse them. You take those, those, that collective group of individuals. It's like, how did we win the war in the Pacific during World War II? We went from island to island to island until we get within striking distance of Japan and dropped a couple bombs, and they surrendered. But we had to take strongholds to get there. So in my life and your life, there are these strongholds. Ways of thinking that we've got to, to demolish. 
Let me give you a quick list of 10 possibles, and I'm sure there's a lot more. Pride. Greed. Loneliness. Fear. Envy. Laziness. Lust. Discouragement. Anger. Depression. Those are all ways of thinking. Now, in that simple, easily compiled list of ten, I got two or three there that are pretty powerful in my life. And so I'm constantly in this warfare to bring down those strongholds. How do I do that? (laughs) In John 8, 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It has to do with truth. In Romans 12, chapter 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's how I think it works. If I'm right here in time, and I become aware of what's going on inside of my mind, how I'm thinking, and I get to the point where I realize that's not helpful. That's not God-honoring. My thinking is sin. So I come to a point of repentance. <coughs> now what you might think is, and what happens then is I go back up and I start going up. No. That's the world's way of thinking. What we continue to do is to invite the Spirit of God to convict us and we go deeper in our repentance. We go deeper in understanding how offensive we are to a holy God. We go deeper in understanding how my sinful behavior has impacted somebody else, and I repent even deeper. And it's a constant downward spiral of repentance. If my wife Sue were here, by the way, I am married. People keep asking me, who is this woman you keep talking about? Uh, she's staying uh, close to her youngest daughter who's going to have a baby at any day now. Uh, and uh, so she's going to be there when, when Micah enters the world. Uh, so we're excited about that. But anyway, uh, I do have a wife. Okay, We've been married for over 45 years. And my wife will tell you, it, without malice, that for the first 10 plus years, I was not a good husband. Now, I was in ministry. I had graduate degrees. I was recognized by different people, head organizations, all kinds of stuff. But, but we, just, we just, things weren't working between my wife and I. It was around year, between years 10 and 12. I remember the day, remember the place where finally there was some clarity in my thinking. You see, my wife and I had, had many, many discussions. 
And we had come up with a few options. One option was divorce, and we didn't think that was acceptable. Uh, one option was that uh, we would just keep doing uh, what we were doing, and that sure wasn't working. And then the third option that we came up with often seemed really attractive, and that was murder. <laughs> we actually talked about it. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Uh, and, uh, uh, but we opted that we weren't going to do that. You know, she wasn't going to kill me. I wasn't going to kill her. So we had to come up with another option, and that was we got to change. And I remember having that moment of clarity where I was overwhelmed with my sinfulness and, and a deep, deep sense of remorse and, and, and coming. And <clears throat> I remember Sue looking at me, watching me, he was in the living room, and, uh, and, and I said, I think I've, I got it. I think I finally figured out what the problem is. Now, we both knew the problem was me, okay? And, and it pretty much was, okay? Not that she didn't have some things she could have worked on, but, but the real problem was me. And so I, I said to her, I think I get it. And I, I said, you know what? I'm really, really selfish. And she looked at me like, that's your insight? That's the best you got? Because it was true. And I had never realized how offensive it was. <laughs> how damaging it was to her. And to everything else in my life. And God started me at that point on a journey of... of and I haven't gotten there yet. I'm still working on it, okay? Don't, make, don't be mistaken about that. Of moving to destroy that stronghold. Moment by moment, piece by piece, decision by decision. And the Lord has blessed my wife and I. And we've seen real progress, healing, and growth. Not that we don't have a long way to go. See, that was a stronghold, a way of thinking that I just didn't get. And I got it going deeper. And then I see, okay, ah, oh, yeah, when I say that, when I act, when I think that, that is really offensive to God, to my wife, to my children, to the church I'm serving. And it's a constant spiral down. The truth will set you free. It's a process of transforming our minds. There's no quick fix. There's no, you know, do five things. 
There's no take this in the morning, you'll be better. It just doesn't work that way. It's a constant process. So, you and I live in a world, a world of people. We're called to be intentional, to understand that that in this world of people, there's also this, this world of culture and influence. It's hostile against God and against us, and so we need to be intentional. We need to act like we're in a war. Don't be naive. Think, think, think. Invite the Spirit of God to instruct you, to convict you. Then our weapons are better. Our weapons are the truth. And it's a process of renewing our minds. And I think that is critical in this sense of knowing what I need to repent of. We live in a world of shallow, virtually meaningless apologies. And someday the plan is for me to share about that with you, but that's another day. And then we come to this strange verse 6. In the context, the Apostle Paul says, I'm being accused of duplicity and and I'm one way, one way. And oh, by the way, we're all in a war. Let's focus on that war. And then he cycles back and he says, and we, that's the Apostle Paul, will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. The ESV says, when your obedience is complete. What he's saying is that I haven't forgotten the accusations about my character. And I'm going to deal with that. But only after you deal with your strongholds. There's this incredible truth that we live in community. Families, churches, neighborhoods. When Jesus was on the, the, Jesus, remember who Jesus is now. When Jesus was on the planet and he went to his hometown, he couldn't do hardly anything because of their lack of faith. When God's people don't deal with their relationship with God, then God's people are ineffective. Even Jesus was rendered less effective because of the disbelief of the people. So what does that mean? This is what it means. That we are all under authority. We're all under authority. And there's a variety of levels and chains of command, if you want to use that old kind of idea, So let's suppose you're a a child living at home. Maybe you're a grade school child. Maybe you're a high school student. Maybe you're a college student. But you're living at home. And you would like your parents to be better parents. Okay? Who wouldn't? You know how to make that happen? Be a better child. Be a better child. 
Would you like the, the pastors of Berean to be better pastors? Pastor means shepherd. Then be better sheep. And you will create an environment that works up. You, you want a wife who is more encouraging and, and likes it when you come home at night? Uh, then be a better husband. You see, we're all under authority. You want the IRS to stop sending you letters? Pay your taxes. You want to be able to drive around without fear of getting a ticket? Stop speeding. Okay? We're under authority. And when, we're under, and when we function in a reasonable, healthy way under authority, there are, there's lots we could talk about, but we don't have the time. <clears throat> then what we do is we make it possible for those in authority to do what they're supposed to do. So the Apostle Paul says, when you guys deal with your strongholds, I'll come and I'll deal with the outside overarching problems. I'll deal with the false teachers, okay? Uh, I'll deal with, with, with the people making these accusations. I'll deal with the divisive people. I'll deal with the wolves in sheep's clothing. But not until you... Get your obedience act together. So what's that mean? Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Learn to be responsible for what we can be responsible for. Ask God and the Holy Spirit to convict us and repent of what we're doing or not doing that we need to stop doing or start doing. And then life works better. Families are healthier. Churches are healthier. It's a wonderful fundamental truth that the Apostle Paul applies to this. He's not forgotten the problems that the church has. He's going to help deal with those. But he's more concerned with, or equally concerned, it's probably better, with the individual lives. So, beloved, just remember that you live in a world of people. And you live in a world of ideas and philosophies. Be intentional. Act like you're in a war. Fight differently. It's not self-assertion. It's humble responsibility. And our weapons are better. Strongholds don't have to be strongholds. And always remember we're under authority and we need to approach life humbly. Not an easy thing. but it's biblical. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Father, thank you for these dear people. Encourage them. Bless them. Lord, our heart's desire is that you have been pleased and blessed by our worship. 
and that, Lord, you are working in our lives. We want to be more like Jesus. We want our minds transformed. We want to be a source of truth and encouragement in every arena of our lives, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless.